Can you imagine having to flee your country and walk over 200 miles? Can you imagine staying in a refugee camp for at least five years in horrible conditions, and then you spend all your money to get to the United States? Then once you get here, you get a vision of how to start a refugee empowerment program for other refugees to get support, education, and equipping needed to prosper in a new country. In fact, you care so much about this work that you work the first six months with no pay. Well, that's what this episode is about, how it all came together, and how you continue to build an organization like this after 20 years, and everything in between. Today, I have the directors, Cam Eccles and Sarah Babb, of Refugee Empowerment Program with me on my show. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. I knew this is what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, is come alongside a community that had been pushed out of their home countries and start new lives in America and how to support them in their new communities. Hello, folks. We all know it's hard to appreciate good insurance until you need it. It can also be a pain finding the right kind of coverage each year. That's why it's helpful to find someone who cares about knowing your insurance needs, will be prompt with communication, and be competitive with price. So when you need auto, home, renters, business, and life insurance, then you need to contact Matt Haga with State Farm Insurance. Go to madhaga.com, M-A-T-T-H-A-A-G-A.com and contact them. Matt Haga State Farm is licensed to provide coverages in Tennessee and Mississippi. We do have listeners to this podcast from all over the world. So please make note that this insurance offer is for the state of Tennessee and Mississippi in the United States. Now we're going to get back to the show. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Cam. Good morning, Sam. Good morning. So, Cam, what was it like volunteering and then leaving your your career, your job, and joining REP? Can you talk a little bit about what that season of life was like and how that happened? I was actually a social service director for a local nonprofit that had been in existence for approximately a hundred years. And at the point of me providing social services throughout the day, I was asked for a meeting from Ruth Lomo and Rochelle Pichardo. And they wanted to talk about space and the work that they were doing in Binghampton. And so we scheduled a meeting, and I didn't know who Rochelle was, nor Ruth. And Ruth comes in, a Sudanese refugee that had been in this country for about a year, had an idea for serving her community. And she wanted to start an after-school program for refugees. At the time, being in Binghamton, I told her that we already had an after-school program for students in Binghamton area. And she looked at me as she always does, woman a few words, but she has a look about herself that I knew that I didn't truly understand what she was asking for. So I tell people that was the beginning of my education of understanding the needs and concern of refugees that had arrived in our community, our city. And we in, in Memphis, we are. We think when we talk about race, it is so black and white. 
and we have a diverse cultures that actually come to Memphis to resettle. So Mama Ruth talked to me about her vision for starting an after-school program for serving refugees. And upon meeting the 12 students that originally came to the after-school program, I knew this is what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, is come alongside a community that had been pushed out of their home countries and start new lives in America and how to support them in their new communities. Wow. When you said that that's something that I knew I wanted to do the rest of my life, what does that mean or what did that feel like at the time? So going back to being a social service director, understanding the dynamics of what impoverished communities look like and people coming into communities to provide that help. There was something different about how Mama Ruth wanted her community to thrive. And it wasn't from a handout standpoint. It was, we want to be able to do for ourselves. If language is the barrier, let's start ESL classes for adults. If uh, education is the barrier for our children, let's start an after-school program to get provide support for those children. So I wanted a betterment model. I wanted people to realize what they were capable of doing for themselves instead of people, that paternalistic idea that our social service programs provide in America. You felt like, in a lot of ways, the way the work was done it was not structured correctly to create the most impact and you wanted the opportunity to create impact through Mama Ruth's vision and you wanted to do it for refugees and you wanted to do it a different way that was that was better. Yes. Wow. Sarah, how long have you been involved in REP and what made you want to go all in on working with this organization? I started as a volunteer in 2007. I'm from Memphis and I was in my last semester at Rhodes studying international relations. And a friend of mine said that they were needing volunteers for an after-school program serving refugee children. And so I said, sure, I'd love to participate. And I went and the first time I, I will never forget walking in and seeing the children and the volunteers and just feeling the positive energy of the community working together to strengthen the education services, um, as well as encourage children to be able to do, to do well in school and to have a place that was just for them. And then, so that committed me as a volunteer. And then I met Ruth and Cam um, and I was captivated by their desire to empower the community to achieve their own objectives and goals. And I committed to stay in Memphis for four or five years to help them build refugee empowerment program, which we did largely from the ground up. Well, and so your title currently is associate director. Is that right? Yes. So I worked at REP from 2007 to 2012. Yeah. And then I went to the Peace Corps in Albania and then graduate school in the Washington, D.C. area. And I stayed on as a consultant for REP during that time, except for the Peace Corps. 
because I was still just so committed and interested in the work. And I do the job of associate director actually remotely now from Arlington, Virginia. Yeah. You, you went remote work before everyone else did. I did. I'm glad now people have a better understanding. And it's not as weird when I say I'm here. Yeah, that is great. Kim, can you talk about when you first started, were there any moments where you were like, why am I doing this? And why did I commit to this? There was not just one moment. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think when you find something that you're passionate about, and you feel that it's your calling, and you feel that you aren't equipped to do the job, then you're always questioning, why me? And then what it does is the people that you walk alongside or serve, it puts you at a place that you're more understanding of their needs. So I, throughout my journey at RAP, I've been very reliant on community leaders. You know, we serve individuals that speak over a dozen languages and dialects, and I only speak English. So that trust has to be developed within the community that I can I can walk alongside and provide the support that's needed of such a diverse community. So I, I still struggle there. You know, I think that's why Sarah does at such... She's so important to the work because there are moments where I felt that, wait, I can't do this anymore. I need support if we're building something for refugees to one day be able to leave this on on their own. But you said something that you're passionate about, something that you feel like you're calling, and then something that you feel ill-equipped to do. There's this constant desire to stay in the game for very deep reasons but then there's also this realization or tendency to feel overwhelmed is that what you're saying yes what about from a from a generosity standpoint can either you or sarah talk about the early days i mean from what it sounds like and ruth immigrated to the united states or came here as a refugee she had a vision of after school programs in the city of Memphis that were not serving refugees the way that they needed to be served. So then, Kim, you have experience in social services prior. You started volunteering. So then y'all started to build this organization. You know, it's hard enough to start a business from scratch. I would imagine it's even harder to start a after school uh, refugee empowerment ministry organization from scratch because it's not for profit. And I mean, can you talk about just the task of that and maybe the task that it still is at times, but, but specifically what it was like to actually start raising money and, you know, raising money to pay yourselves, raising money to have the facility, raising money to do the things that you needed for the refugees. Sure. I'd like to go back just for a minute um, about Ruth and her motivation. I think Ruth's vision was always greater than an after school program, even if she didn't focus on that in the beginning. But Ruth is also very asset-minded and not deficit-minded. So it wasn't necessarily that she was dissatisfied with programs serving refugees, but she was felt called to serve her own community. And she had also been fortunate to become affiliated with a family in Memphis who offered support to her children academically, 
getting them enrolled in schools that Ruth thought were good for them, helping them with their homework. And she wanted to be able to create an infrastructure that would provide that for more students because she felt that, you know, God had blessed her family by bringing this, these Americans alongside them. And she wanted to create a structure in which other kids would have the same and they wouldn't have to rely on luck or specific pairings. Yeah. So is it safe to say that that family, whoever that family is, was instrumental financially in helping make things happen early on as well? For the organization, no. I think, Sam, again, that passion that drives you to do what you do. Sarah, myself, Ruth, Rochelle, all started out as volunteers. And because of our desire to serve the refugee community, grew and continues, we actually volunteered and a lot of our work around fundraising was advocacy and bringing awareness and educating the Memphis community. Cam and I, when we decided we would start Refugee Empowerment Program with a vision of Indigenous leadership, we had to find a new location to offer those services. And so we worked without compensation for the first six months. We used a free space in the library to plan and build, um, and we were offering services in participants' homes. And about six months after that, Memphis Leadership Foundation welcomed us on board as an operational ministry, and they committed to help us build some of the administrative infrastructure and provide back office support because they believed in uh, us and what we wanted to do with the community. Wow. I mean, I, I just hear you loud and clear talking about AEL's commitment. You know, you said six months in, working for free, working out of service and the belief, and then Memphis Leadership Foundation coming in, it sounds like, started to really try to equip and advance and propel the work that y'all were doing. It sounds like that was a very uh, meaningful relationship early on. Is that true? It still is. <laughs> We are transitioning out from being an operational ministry. Uh, We have our own 501c3 status right now, but Memphis leadership is still an amazing source of support for us. Yeah. Sarah, what what do you think drew you to this work from an early age? Because it seems like there are people out there that know what they want to do or feel a belief on what they want to do early on. It sounds like there's people that really never figure it out, or there's some people, they find it or they change or... You know, in their 30s or 40s, what do you think about you made you understand and know that early on? The International Studies Department at Rhodes was excellent. And I was very interested in that field of study as soon as I took my first introductory class. I thought, you know, seeing how we're all humans and we all want basically the same things, but we have the diversity of culture that makes life rich and interesting. I just wanted to learn more about how other people lived. And then meeting Ruth and Cam and seeing a refugee come to the United States and be focused not only on providing for her five children, as well as her six nieces and nephews who she was responsible for, 11 children and her as a single mom, she wanted to build something. She was clean, you know, she was a janitor at night in buildings. She was cleaning houses during the day and all of her other energy went into helping her community. And I thought, wow, if she can do that and Cam can basically volunteer an extra 20 hours a week to build this, I want to be a part of that because this could be great. Well, Cam, can you talk a little bit about what's it like to take so much risk 
to go down a journey that's what sounds like, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but incredibly fulfilling and rewarding, but then also very hard, but with minimal, you know, recognition. I'm, I'm sure like you're very recognized amidst your friends, your peers, a lot of people within the community. But can you talk a little bit about any tension between just from a human standpoint of wanting recognition for a life of service, but then also not doing the work for recognition, doing it for a deeper purpose? <laughs> I have to laugh at it, Sam, because you're right. I think we all struggle with wanting to be recognized for something we love and are passionate about. But at the end of the day, you realize it's not about you. When I see young people who have gone through our after school program, graduate from college, and send an email and thank me and the REP for the work uh, that we've done from providing support for their education and then not giving up on them as an individual, seeing them for more than that refugee label, that we are people that just came to this new country and didn't understand everything. So these are young people that begin to serve in local businesses, starting their own businesses, serving in government settings, and their voices are being heard and they always come back and say it was because you all believed in us when no one else did when the language barrier when we weren't familiar with the culture and so the recognition becomes that's what makes the work fulfilling is okay what we set out to do what mama ruth vision when she sat in that office with me and says she wanted to do something for a community and they come back and say thank you all for not giving up on us and that that's enough that I don't have to look for others to tell me how great of a job that REP is doing in the community. Can you or Sarah talk about any challenges with Mama Ruth coming over here? Uh, you said Sarah, she was responsible for 11 children. You know, I had that she was in a refugee camp, Kakuma, correct, in South Sudan before she came. How many years was she in Kakuma? I would have to guess, but I think around five. And I've heard that's a pretty rough place. I mean, not rough from a Western standpoint, like rough from a refugee camp standpoint. Yes. She, Ruth has always been driven. And so she's always been an entrepreneur and she would do whatever it took to earn money to support education and nutrition for our family, um, which she did in South Sudan and in the camp. She was part of a uh, carpentry program. So she was able to build some skills and make a little bit of extra money because she had, otherwise there was no food. Like her, I believe, you know, infant nephew, she had to feed from a Ziploc bag with a tiny hole in it. And he would drink a mixture of some sort of meal or flour and water because there was nothing else. And so, you know, out of desperation and motivation, she tried to earn whatever money she could in the camp to get nutrition for the children. Yeah, I've heard this is a quote that I pulled, but it said, it's a Kakuma life is semi-arid desert environment and Kakuma is challenging. The area has always been full of problems, dust storms, high temperatures, poisonous spiders, snakes, scorpions, outbreaks of malaria, 
the average daytime temperature is 40 degrees Celsius or 104 degrees Fahrenheit. That sounds like a very brutal place to be. And Ruth got there by walking from South Sudan through war-torn territory um, with her sister, I believe, and 11 children in total. And her sister did not make it to the camp, which is why Ruth became responsible for her nieces and nephews. Um, And she was able to resettle all of them in the the United States, which only 1% of global refugees are ever resettled, um, about half of which are in the United States. So she was among a lucky few, but she did everything she could to get here as well. So the... The rest of the 99% of global refugees, they stay in refugee camps unless they pass? Most are eventually repatriated to the home countries they came from, but a significant majority are also allowed to stay in what they call the host country, where like the camp is or some refugees are allowed to remain in cities. So third country resettlement would be what happens when they come to the U.S., and that's only 1%. In South Sudan, they they were in war at that time, right? And that's why she was displaced? Yes. How many miles do you know that did she have to walk to get to Kakuma? I think she talks about it as walking from Memphis to Nashville. She, she, she walked there in the middle of a war-torn environment. She loses her sister. She takes her sister's six kids. So then her five plus six becomes 11. She's in Kakuma for five years. She's hustling, doing whatever she can to bring in money and to, and to take care of the kids. And then she gets allowed to be a refugee in the United States. And she brings all 11 of those children here with her. Is that correct? Yes. Can you talk a little bit about just some of the core fundamentals that REP believes in that she was passionate about, that she didn't want to negotiate on, about the key things that were going to make REP a success and actually make it run by uh, former, you know, refugees one day? I think it's empowerment. I'll tell this story. A month after I met Ms. Ruth, a Sudanese mother came in and couldn't speak any English, but she would point to items that she needed for her family. And it was clothing, it was food items, it was household items that she wanted. And after Mama Ruth got off work, she comes in and we're talking about uh, program ideas. And I tell her this story of, wow, Mama Ruth, the community is now realizing that REP is a place to come to. And Mama Ruth looks at me and shakes her head and says, Miss Cam, I don't want you to mess up this work. And I sat there speechless. And she says, what I want is for my people to be able to do for themselves. Mm. That mother that you helped sit, uh, is at home and it, we're providing ESL classes so she can learn the language. I don't want people to keep coming to social service programs, receiving things that they can provide for themselves. Mm. And so empowerment is something she does not, uh, it, it's just all in our DNA. And every, everything we do is about empowerment. And we always question. We started a uniform drive at one time for newcomers. And year two, that expectation of, yes, you're going to provide uniforms for my children this year because you did it before. And she said, there's that dependency. I don't want them to be dependent on REP. 
she sounds like a very tough lady. And, and then y'all also sound like very tough ladies. It sounds like a lot of tough love and a lot of uh, people not getting what they want. And, you know, the tough love gets dished out internally <laughs> also. So how does that work working together with three passionate people that are opinionated and that want, that really believe in the mission of the organization, but that have, it sounds like have different strengths? Uh, that there does sound like they complement each other, but can you talk about either the good lessons learned or the tough and hard lessons learned about how you kind of bring three different individuals together for alignment and to create advancement and progress towards the vision and the mission of REP? So it was a significant learning curve for me. My, I had grown up in an environment that encouraged me to believe that I was the best and I was so smart, I was so compassionate, and anyone would be lucky to have me, you know, did well, graduated from Rhodes, came to REP thinking like, you know, they're so lucky to have me, but, which is not entirely untrue, but it's very misguided. <laughs> and within probably four months, I just broke down in Cam's office one day, like on my knees crying, very uncharacteristic for me. And I just said, I don't understand what to do. Like everything I suggest you tell me is wrong. All my perspectives seem to be misguided. Like, I just don't know what to do. What am I doing here? And she said, oh, I'm so glad that you've come to this realization. Now we can begin the real work. This is Cam or Mama Ruth? This is Cam. Okay. <laughs> all right. Good. Now, all right. Sorry. Because she... Ruth is um, on our board of directors and has been very involved in administering support and programs, but she has not actually been on our staff. So Cam has always been my direct supervisor. So Cam said, okay, great. I've been waiting for this day. Now let's, let's do some work. Yes. And then what what that looked like after that? So it was me realizing I had been raised, you know, amongst people who all, you know, were white and looked like me out in the country. I had never worked in an inner city environment before. And I was completely naive about the type of skill set and the open mind and everything that I needed to learn about how to do the work well. And so I kept offering help instead of opening my mind and seeing what people needed, what they were asking for and being available. Um, and so there was, you know, there was a definitely a cultural divide for me coming in, you know, as a white person who'd been raised largely around white people in a white culture, working in a predominantly, you know, a almost exclusively non-white environment. So Cam, how did that work for you with, with Ruth? Because obviously you have, a, you had opinions, you had career, you had experience being in social services. So how did you hash that out with Ruth about the vision and the direction and how things would be done. It's funny. I can recall one meeting where we just uh, sat there and stared at each other. (laughs) It was a stare down. Like, I feel this way about this issue and she felt another way. And we, what makes her great at what she does is she, she sat in that moment of us, that quiet time, that silence is where she and I both realized in order for this to work, we have to understand where we're coming from. So when I say, this is how we're going to do it. And she says, no, Miss Cam, this doesn't work. I have to be more intentional about communicating why I feel that this would be beneficial to the community. This is what some of the laws are. We, you know, here's how it could benefit the community. So 
and us just being very open to conversation and having those hard conversations is where we actually, it was groundbreaking for us. Wow. That's a really beautiful story. And Sarah, I feel like it's what is able to be understood from you and from Cam, just, you know, just the, the challenge and the difficulty and the pain if you just stay so rigid and you don't try to adjust and be more flexible, especially when you're working with others and trying to get things done. I think there's just a lot of lessons in what y'all just shared. REP is close to 20 years in. What does this look like now? And how do y'all feel about like where things are at right now, about 20 years in, and then what you're shooting for for the next 10? And how do y'all kind of pursue this vision of making this an indigenous led and run organization? So we involve the community in our work on a number of fronts, advisory councils, meetings, our advisory board, now our governing board. But one particularly exciting evolution has been our ability to hire cultural brokers from the refugee community to work full time on staff, working in the area of cultural integration and navigation, as well as supporting our programs. So we hire individuals who have shown a commitment to empowerment work, as well as uh, an alignment with REP's mission. And who represent a diversity of the participants that we serve to ensure that we are culturally and linguistically competent to offer services. I mean, it's a very bold, ambitious vision. I don't, and I'd be curious as much as y'all are willing to share about how many refugees are a part of the program now versus when they started. But by you talking about this specific program with the cultural brokers, y'all view this as a key kind of stepping stone to the next step of the organization. Is that what you're saying? Yes, definitely. I think, you know, it goes in tandem with having our board of directors be at least 50% refugee or immigrant, if not more, uh, because that, you know, is a different level of input. And then the cultural brokers doing the direct services on the ground, helping to develop programs and offer continuous feedback on a daily basis and connect with the community is an equal part. But, you know, it will be up to the, a particular leader um, who may want to come rise up and serve REP because it is not an easy job to run this type of nonprofit. And we want to keep building the infrastructure um, and engaging people in the hopes that an individual will want to take on that work. And even if that, that takes a long time to actually have an executive director or other leadership who is a refugee or an immigrant, we'll continue to have representation through cultural brokers, advisory councils, governing board, youth councils, um, to build momentum around that eventuality coming true because we won't force anyone. You know, it has to be someone who's committed and eager and wants to do it. And that y'all feel like is capable. And who the community feels is capable. You know, mine and Cam and Ruth's stamp of approval is important, but having the respect and commitment of the community to say, yes, you know, we think this is a good next step um, and good leadership is also important. So, and what you're saying is this is a way it's like y'all keep building out the infrastructure the way you said it. And this is a way to, to now have former people going through the program that are refugees, but now they're part of the board. So that now they're a part of the direction and the leadership of the organization as a whole. So there's just more and more equity in the organization and y'all are continuing to use your passion, your expertise and build out the organization in the best way that 
collectively you think it needs to be done, but then you're trying to set it up more and more for that next leader to take over to, to really execute uh, the vision the way y'all stated at the beginning. Americans always stay involved. You know, we believe that the diversity is important. What other lessons have we not talked about that are worth sharing to anybody listening to this interview today about what it's like to go in a different direction than most, what it's like to start with a desire or a, a way a way to provide value to, to really change people's lives, to, to, to spend six months not getting paid at first, to operate within so much ambiguity, and then to be 20 years in and to go through all the things, all the things to celebrate, all the tough lessons. You know, what would you pass on to somebody else that's maybe in the same game or wants to start something or wants to maybe make a career change that you've learned now just by being close to 20 years in as an organization? I'd like to start with responding to the indigenous leadership, Sam. When we started this, as an American, I had a five-year plan. If I wanted to be successful, I needed this organization up and running by a refugee within that time frame. But again, that's some of the learning curve we've had in this work is when you're talking about what refugees have gone through and coming to a new country, I think I was a little clueless to meeting that goal in the five years. And that's why it has been as long as it has been for me to remain in at REP because refugees are trying to navigate their new lives in this new country and understand systems while they're still caring for their families and um, concerned about families they left back home. So as Sarah talks about building the infrastructure, we want that leadership to come naturally that they don't have to go through building the organization. They will have a foundation that they can walk into and serve the community well. So as a takeaway from what you're sharing, you came in and you had a five-year plan and we're close to 20 years, so close to four times that amount. And just the the think, which I've heard this before, I've, I've been to Africa a few times for some things that I've been able to kind of be a part of and visit, but Every time I, I go, it's I'm always just reminded and told, you know, just because you're from the West doesn't mean that uh, you know exactly the way everything needs to be done and that everything's going to follow the schedule. And so just kind of pump the brakes. Uh, I mean, I feel like I hear that almost every hour. So hopefully I, I change more. But a takeaway from what you're sharing, I guess, is, is that with this, you had a five-year plan and and we're close to 20 years in and you're building the infrastructure. And, and so now you're just committed. So maybe some of the advice that you're sharing is you've got to know where the end game is. You got to know where the end result is. And it's going to be a windy road getting there. And you're, it's not always going to follow the PowerPoint. That's true. I think sometimes we get caught up, too caught up on what it, the visual representation of what it looks like to have a refugee as the ED. Because that is the, you know, that's the ultimate leadership position. And I think we might get too hung up on saying we haven't accomplished our goal if we're not there yet. But, you know, our uh, board chair is a refugee who is a former staff person, at a former participant for a little bit, and then a staff person, and now he's our board chair. 
you know, we have the majority of our board, which is refugees. We have refugees on staff. So even though we don't have that, you know, important figurehead yet that is a refugee in leadership position, we do have an entire team of leader, formalized leadership around UCAM that who are refugees, um, which we did not have before. You know, you always pulled in the community, but it was more informal. And now we've kind of codified those relationships to give input and direction to the ED. Yeah, I hear you. We want to ensure that we can get the proper financial support, you know, in those structures so that when a refugee does come in, they're able to do this work and still provide for their family because refugees have to relinquish all of their assets when they come. So they come not only with no money, but they come with debt of travel loans. And so, you know, if we are encouraging someone to take on a leadership position in REP and forego a potentially more lucrative career, we want to make sure that it is, you know, a sustainable income for them. Gotcha. I'd love to close talking about learning a little bit more about the characteristics of the refugee that you see. Uh, I've, you know, just read a lot, a lot of different places. And I've even heard you describe it about Mama Ruth, just about refugees are filled with a lot of perseverance. They're filled with a lot of hope. They have a lot of what it's like to come from a, to be displaced in a war-torn country. There's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of pain but there's a lot of desire for, for change and growth. There's a lot of desire to serve. Can you talk about what you've seen, the characteristics, the heart of somebody that comes here as a refugee or goes to other countries? And can you talk about the value that they give our society and our culture that we may not recognize or, or realize? What I've heard, and just not my own idea of what a refugee is, is what Mama Ruth has has raised some amazing children that are now giving back to their community. And one of the things that her daughter Joyce continues to tell me is that this is a partnership, that yes, we're smart individuals that have overcome a lot, that resilience that's there, that they are looking for people just to walk alongside them and they can do for themselves. So you're talking about educated, bright people that come from countries that they were doctors, pilots in, and they have to start over. And just not giving up that endurance that they have, that we have an opportunity that most people in our position weren't so fortunate to come to another country to start anew, to be able to have free education, to able to have transportation. And they seek every opportunity to prove that they're worthy to be in this country. And I think so many Americans need to realize that we are very fortunate to have people that believe in this country enough that they want to come here. We were born here. We didn't necessarily have a choice, but these are people that want to be here. And they do, given the right opportunities, they thrive and they give back, not only to their community, but to the American community. They consider themselves being a part of a greater community. So we are very blessed that we have refugees here, not only in Memphis, but in America. Yes, ma'am. And sadly, I feel like it's so easy for us to, to not, if we don't have those personal experiences and those personal relationships, we don't see that a lot of times. I feel like a lot of times our perspectives can be distorted 
because of what's publicized or what's presented in a lot of ways. And um, it sounds like an incredible amount of sacrifice, and an incredible amount of desire. I mean, you can even look at a lot of statistics of even when you look into crime and things like that, there's tremendous amount of data, even if you just look at the data alone about the value uh, of what a refugee brings a community. But then just to kind of get deeper in to, to y'all's experience, to the relationships that y'all have and to the meaningful work that y'all are doing and trying to help kind of the on-ramp, so to speak, of getting acclimated to our culture and our country through education, through work ethic, through um, just understanding and awareness and medical and legal and everything else that y'all do. It's, it's incredible. Ruth's motto guides us like the work of the refugees will never be done, not as a discouraging, but just as a context. Um, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention all of our volunteers and community partners who make this possible. You know, Cam and I are, have the privilege of talking about the work, um, and the, but the volunteers and community partners, you know, really help us pull that all together too. And REP is open and excited about um, new volunteers too. And maybe a few people will learn about it through your podcast. Yes, ma'am. I think they will. This has been a really, really motivating conversation. It's been humbling hearing the work that y'all are doing. It was wonderful hearing about y'all's organization, as I told you earlier, from a mutual friend. So I'm just so thankful that y'all came on today. And I can't wait to get this episode out. Well, thank you for having us. Yes, ma'am. You bet. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. I hope you learned at least one thing today that you can apply to your own life. If you like the show, please make sure and leave a review and be sure to tune in each week as I'll be releasing a new episode. Hope you have a great day. Bye.